Mouse to Mouse, Episode 9, Viva Las Vegas. As I climbed back into the car at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, the sun had begun to set and the digital clock on the dashboard claimed that it was almost six in the evening. I say claimed because I'm not convinced that our blue Ford Fusion was an entirely reliable witness as, according to the date that it preferred, it was August 4th, 2133. If we had indeed travelled 113 years into the future, I would have expected to have seen the odd flying car, driven past one or two hitchhikers in tinfoil suits and maybe even bumped into a thawed-out Walt Disney. I know, I know, I just couldn't resist it. But no such event had occurred. I decided, therefore, to take the chronometer at its word, and that meant we would be rolling into Vegas just as the clock struck 10, and that was assuming that we didn't encounter any traffic on the freeway leaving Greater Los Angeles. Since we had a time-travelling car at our disposal, I can spool forward by a couple of hours and confirm that this optimism was deeply misplaced, and that we in fact became extremely well acquainted with the taillights of what appeared to be the combined automotive population of Southern California, which seemed to have had the same idea as us about heading for Sin City. Well, it seemed that way until, after the best part of two hours, they all somehow miraculously disappeared revealing no evidence whatsoever of any significant traffic-causing incident. I can only conclude that the time-slipping abilities of our car were in fact a standard feature in the modern American automobile, and that what I had foolishly taken for a common or garden traffic jam had actually been a parking lot for four-wheeled TARDISes, a term that I am told by Hooniverse.net is the accepted TARDIS plural among discerning time lords, that had en masse, suddenly popped off to an adjacent dimension. So it was then that we happened to be finally getting up to full cruising speed and entering the outer reaches of the Mojave Desert just as the sun had decided to exchange its hat for a sleeping cap. If you've ever been in the desert as night falls, you'll be aware that it doesn't really observe the niceties that most of us city folk are used to at day's end. True, there was a brief period of golden sunset that drew the odd gasp of appreciation from Sarah and I, but that was swiftly followed by the abrupt switching off of the celestial light switch and the plunging of the road into complete and utter darkness. Now, I don't mean the sort of darkness that's punctuated by those comforting little reflective cat's eyes in the middle of the road, or the general orange glow of streetlights. They seem to see no need for such luxuries in this particular stretch of desert. When I say darkness, I mean a proper inky black abyss that is barely troubled by the lone headlamps of a Ford Fusion that by this point was pretty much alone in what can only be described as a rather hostile environment. I'd be lying if I told you that I was completely untroubled by thoughts of us running out of gas or bursting a tyre and thus ending up as some sort of feral family forced to live on scavenged rodents and seeking shelter under a gnarled old cactus. Then again, I would also not be being completely honest if I said I didn't have an overactive imagination. The dark desert road seemed to stretch on and on forever, broken up just occasionally by the meagre light of some remote and from what we could see rather desolate little settlement. By this point we had a couple of pretty tired kids in the back of the car who were thankfully dividing their attention between watching episodes of Scooby-Doo and taking funny pictures of each other on their iPads. How, may I ask, were family road trips even possible before the advent of such an invaluable boredom-avoiding device? Every now and then, we would glimpse one of the region's quirky sights, some of which I had, over-optimistically, planned for us to frolic around in daylight. 
such as the world's tallest thermometer in Baker, California, which was helpfully illuminated and thus confirmed to us that while dark, it was still extremely hot out. And right in the middle of nowhere, the Scandia Family Fun Centre, a small and very isolated theme park that is unlikely to be troubling Disneyland's daily attendance records anytime soon. After many hours of driving, we spied a brightly lit oasis in the distance that instantly generated a buzz of excitement and a rousing chorus of Viva Las Vegas. The only problem was that the casino resorts that were radiating this particular patch of light pollution were not Luxor or Caesars Palace, but Whiskey Pete and Buffalo Bills, and Viva Prim just doesn't have the same ring to it. Soon enough, though, we began to see an even brighter glowing metropolis, and by this point, we knew that either we were about to hit Las Vegas, or we'd reached the stage at which the whole family was seeing a mirage, and not one built by Steve Wynn. Although by now, the evening had long since passed, and we were firmly into the night, such is the wattage of the illumination along the famous strip that thousands of people wandering up and down it might just as well have been taking a midday stroll. My children, by now with eyes as big as saucers in the back of the car, gazed agog out of the car window as all humanity, and some, I'm not sure quite fitted that description, spilled out of hotels and casinos that must have looked to them for all the world like giant neon versions of what they'd just left behind at Disneyland. Then we drove into the registration area of the Venetian, our home for the next couple of days, and I think their minds were officially blown. The grandeur and sheer scale of the reception left them open-mouthed, and once we finally made it up to our Bella suite and saw its split-level living area and a bathroom that was about the size of our country, they didn't know whether to collapse into bed or break into a rousing chorus of That's Amore. The fact that by this time we were well past midnight meant that for all their excitement they chose the former rather than the latter, and within minutes of entering our suite the whole family were asleep. Like a more concentrated version of the challenge that met us over three days in Disneyland, we were faced with the impossible task of taking in what Vegas had to offer in a single day. Just as with the Anaheim Resort, this was in large part going to be as much about accepting which of the myriad entertainment possibilities we simply could not do as it was about seeing the sights of Vegas. It may seem slightly odd, particularly considering that this was actually the third time that Sarah and I had been there, that the one thing we were both perfectly happy to do without was gambling. The remote chance of leaving the town flushed with winnings, although the much more likely scenario is of making the house that little bit richer, is of course at the core of the seductive dream that draws in excess of 40 million people to this iridescent rock in the middle of the desert every year. Increasingly though, the once satirical tag of Las Vegas being a sort of grown-up Disneyland has become more and more true, as the city centre has retrofitted itself to take the form of the kind of themed environment that Walt Disney pioneered on the other side of the Mojave in the 50s. While I certainly would not seek to suggest that Vegas is a Disney-rivaling mecca for kids, only about 10% of its visitors is below the age of 21, there is definitely no shortage of family-friendly things to do, alongside the rather more adult-oriented pastimes on offer. There have, during the recent post-mob history of Las Vegas, even been some direct connections to Disney, such as the two former Walt Disney World Mark IV monorail trains that shuttled revelers between Bally's and the MGM Grand for seven years in the 1990s. Indeed, given his general connection to anything with wheels in the Disney universe, and the specific role that he played in the development of that very monorail, it's interesting that Disney Imagineering legend Bob Gurr should provide another reminder that sometimes what happens in Vegas started in Anaheim. 
Gurr was responsible for the engineering design of the sadly now extinct pirate ship that was sunk on the hour by the Royal Navy outside the Treasure Island Hotel and Casino on the Strip for many years. On the other side of the globe, Disney even considered building a hotel designed by the famed postmodern architect Robert Venturi at the Disneyland Paris Resort, called Disney Las Vegas, that would pay an oblique tribute to Sin City's iconic 1958 Stardust Hotel. One of the things that is difficult to convey to anyone who has never visited the place is the sheer scale of the resorts along the Las Vegas Strip. We could, for instance, have comfortably stayed for two weeks and ate every breakfast, lunch and dinner in a different restaurant without ever leaving the Venetian Resort. Although I suspect, if we had done so, the only way we could have left would have been on one of those hover chairs that the fat people in Pixar's Wall-E used to get around. I wouldn't want you to think that gluttony was the only thing on offer here, though. The Grand Canal shops offer a super high-end consumption experience to rival anything in Rodeo Drive or Bond Street, with the small matter of an indoor canal replete with gondola rides thrown in for good measure. Because of the hyper-real nature of this town, it's easy to gloss over the presence of this waterway, but then, after gazing at it for a while, it suddenly dawns on you that you went up two sets of escalators to reach it. So not only is this canal inside a hotel... It's actually a canal that flows two floors up above a giant casino. Once you make peace with this extraordinary fact, and accept that here just about anything, apart from the casinos ever closing, is possible, it helps you to refocus your mindset to Vegas mode in preparation of what awaits you along the strip. What awaited us was a trip just across the street to the Mirage to visit the secret garden of Siegfried and Roy. Just across the street, though, needs to be placed into its proper context, as, because of the aforementioned size of these hotels, combined with one of the craziest straight lines of traffic insanity on the planet, the journey must have taken us a good half an hour. Add into the mix the fact that walking outside in Las Vegas in August is roughly akin to opening your oven door mid-bake and feeling the skin on your face begin to take on the consistency of melted cheese – and this will give you some idea of how pleased we were to once again step into the icy chill of the hotel's air conditioning. The relief, though, was short-lived, as the secret garden, being a garden, although as far as I can see there is nothing very secret about it, was back on the other side of the glass, in the blast furnace. We dutifully bought our tickets and enjoyed seeing the assorted big cats and dolphins that populate this rather charming little oasis, But if I'm entirely honest, the sheer ferocity of the desert heat meant that admiring the majesty of the German duo's magical menagerie was slightly overshadowed by the self-preserving desire to be inside a climate-controlled bubble with a frosty beverage. After another trek between resorts, although thankfully this one didn't require us to cross the strip, we found ourselves strolling through the forum shops at Caesar's Palace, another of the city's themed shopping paradises, browsing the glittery array of stores and seeking out a table at the mall's branch of the Cheesecake Factory, which happened to be opposite the Fall of Atlantis, a combined aquarium and animatronics extravaganza. The meal was, as always at this particular chain, both plentiful and delicious, and just as I was struggling with the dilemma of wanting to eat more of what looked like a full plate, while being fully aware that to do so might result in me being unable to fit back through the door of the hotel, The lights dimmed and the animated struggle for Atlantis began. Since Sarah, who eats at a more genteel pace than I, was still finishing her meal, I took the kids over to watch the show. Anyone who's seen it couldn't help but draw comparisons with its similarity to the kind of spectacle that Disney have long since been the masters of. 
The kids were fully engaged in the argument between Alia and Gadrius, the offspring of Atlantean King Atlas, but my attention had been captured by something else. Just before the show began, they had fed the fish in the aquarium that housed it, presumably to engage them with eating rather than have them traumatised by the shenanigans that was taking place above them. The thing that fascinated me was the fact that what they seemed to be feeding them was prawns. Shrimp to our American cousins. Now, I lay no claim to being any sort of Jacques Cousteau or even having a general understanding of marine life, but it struck me as a touch on the cannibalistic side, and I couldn't help hearing the voice of Sebastian, the lobster from The Little Mermaid, intoning the word, guess who's gone beyond a plate, in horror at the very idea. I'm sure you'll be hoping for a series of lurid tales of our engagement with the Las Vegas nightlife. But alas, when you have a child who ensures that every day begins at approximately 5.30, your idea of an extravagant night of revelry tends to get revised down to a glass of something cold in front of the TV and perhaps an extra pillow. Besides, our suite really was so very nice, and I had reached a point in my life at which the duvet generally looks a great deal more appealing than the dance floor. (laughs) 